Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Praxcast. So at the end of the last episode on education, I was discussing how through emergent thinking, a society can solve problems coming together which no individual would have been capable of solving. This of course happens through the process of collective agglomeration and synthesis of ideas that no individual would have been uh, capable of synthesizing on their own. An example of emergent thought is how on the internet uh, people are able to solve uh, mysteries which otherwise would have been impossible to solve. Uh, examples being Cicada and the Stonehenge uh, subreddit on Reddit. For this emergent thinking to take place, we need a medium of exchanging ideas, which for the most part are languages. And the topic for today's podcast, as you may already know, is also language. So in Analects, Confucius wrote, without knowing the force of words, it is impossible to know more. With that thought, let us begin our discussion about how uh, language works and also how it helps us think and uh, reach higher levels of social hedonism. So humans are emotional machines and not logical ones unlike computers. Even when we say be reasonable, we are only asking the other party to align to our own values. Humans being emotional machines can also be inferred from a study that was done in which people responded more to stories about uh, individual Syrian kids than statistics about how millions of them are homeless. The struggles of a single individual uh, speak to us more than, uh, than a mathematical statistic about the whole. And because we are emotional machines, all our ideas originate as feelings and biases in our psyches a conscious and unconscious level. These feelings are articulated and understood by ourselves through putting them into words. The Feynman technique requires us to do this very literally. Language then contains this set of words and the listener responds by uh, feeling some sort of feeling and the speaker often uh, wants the listener to have the same emotional uh, response to their ideas as the speaker themselves had. But often times when we try to convey our ideas or our feelings to someone through language, we see a sort of loss in communication, a loss in transit in which the listener isn't, uh, doesn't respond as well to our ideas as we did or at least then get the same emotional response as we did when we uh, understood our own feelings. The only way we can overcome this problem is by using words to build better narratives that are uh, better here of course referring to uh, narratives that are better at invoking an emotional response in the listener, the person you are communicating with. So, uh, two of the major themes we'll be discussing today are going to be words and the narratives we build by using words. To understand how words work, let us first discuss how, uh, evolutionarily speaking, words and narratives and communication came to be. It is a well-known fact that humans are the only uh, animals capable of higher le- well, communication that isn't limited to the bare minimum required for oneself to survive. Not only can we uh, 
signal each other of danger or other stimuli we can also uh, discuss abstract concepts and uh, we can also create art which uh, often uh, serves the purpose of consoling people by letting them know that the feelings they are feeling are not limited to themselves but are universal examples of this be uh, being poems like i felt a funeral in my brain by emily dickens another uh, reason uh, i said that humans are the only uh, animals capable of higher level thinking skills is there are no animals that are able to cap uh, synthesize knowledge bases over generations uh, other than humans mm. jim bapis lamarck did research uh, around this subject where he came to the conclusion that by being able to discuss ideas with others humans are capable of uh, transferring the knowledge the ideas they come uh, came up with during their lifetime on to their children and when this process keeps repeating we will bigger and bigger knowledge bases uh, which serve the purpose of development which serve the purpose of alleviating social well being and but at the core there's only one uh, one or two reasons that we want to communicate on a personal level not from a third person point of uh, view where we can see what are the benefits of communicating but as an individual there are not a uh, these are not the reason one wants to communicate the reason we want to communicate is based around identity and to understand the reason let us discuss uh, what i like to call the social theory of identity so people often ask uh, where the you in the you is whether it is in your body whether it is in your brain whether it is in your mind uh, and to understand that i would like to uh, where you recite to understand that i would like to start by discussing lacan so lacan said that a child develops a sense of ego a sense of separation from the world around him after his exposure to mirrors when a child sees himself in a mirror he is able to differentiate his own being from everything around him but uh, in a in edmund Car edmund carpenter study in the 1960s he found that when he exposed the tribal pe people to mirrors tribal people who have never seen mirrors in their lives before they responded with utter cringe they couldn't come to terms with how they looked in the mirror and they were shook out of their perspectives about themselves so it becomes clear that uh, children are uh, don't come to a sense of self when they are exposed to a mirrors a mirror and uh, it so they also be obvious from the fact that for most of human history children didn't have mirrors and even if someone argues that uh say children were, uh, were able to see them their images in water or some other reflective sur uh, surfaces it stand that edmund carpenter did prove that tribes didn't know how they uh, actually looked so i believe that identity develops personal identity develops when the people around us start acknowledging ourselves as being different from them and we are able to understand this acknowledgement the sociometer model of self worth which is the uh, uh, most prominent theory of self worth we have right now so also uh, reasons that 
और सेल्फ वर्थ डजेंट डिपेंड ऑन और अचीवमेंट्स और ऑन हाउ वी फील अबाउट और सेल्फ इट डिपेंड्स ऑन हाउ अदर्स टेलर्स वी शुड फील अबाउट और सेल्फ सो इफ समवन प्रेजेज अस दैट्स द ओनली रीजन दैट वी फील बेटर अबाउट और सेल्फ इट इज सोशल वैलिडेशन वेदर इम्प्लिसिट और एक्सप्लिसिट दैट अलाउज अस टू फील बेटर अबाउट और ओन सेल्फ एंड सिमिलरली वॉट आई एम my conjecture from this and uh, how we are not, we haven't been able to determine whether our identity resides in our body brain or mind is that our identity doesn't reside in ourselves it resides in everything else's acknowledgement of us not being them the same can be applied to uh, group identities which are bigger than individual identities for example I believe that identity comes from shared beliefs values and practices when groups have shared beliefs and practices they form a sense of identity and the people who are not part of that group start acknowledging that the group is different from their own group which leads to formation of a uh, collective identity this process keeps repeating as religions acknowledge each other uh, as being different religions nation acknowledges each other as being different nations and so on this ties back to my explanation on layers of identity which i did in depth uh, in the first episode and i touched on in several episodes after that Now coming back to Lacan he also said that when a baby is exposed to a mirror and thus realizes that he is different from the world around him it uh, shocks him and the uh, it is probably the biggest shock of our lives to understand that we are not one with the world we are different from him i believe that after this point when we realize how we are different from the world explaining w- how or own personal nuance to everyone around us becomes the primary objective of our life the reason for that is when uh, lacan said when we see uh, the baby sees itself in a mirror it realizes that everyone around him doesn't perceive it as the abstract line of thought stream of consciousness that it's uh, it saw itself as the people around him just see him as a physical body with no nuance at all and i personally believe that afterwards explaining this nuance to everyone else because if people are able to understand the nuance in ourselves and uh, understand us more in depth than a physical body they are better able to understand our decisions and actions and thus are validate our actions and decisions more which is obviously the primary aspect uh, the primary concern for ourselves uh in the last episode i also discussed how social validation is the underlying object of uh, which uh, fuels all or their pursuits and the reason we want social validation is of course that helped us uh, form tribes but for people to validate us we try to explain to them in more depth uh, how we are and what we think the only way we would be able to do that is through language through the medium of communication uh b- using which we uh, we are often able to invoke feelings in uh, others which we feel ourselves and that will uh, 
make our decisions and actions look more justified to them than they did before they were able to understand the feelings and emotions and biases that went into us making that decision. So on a personal level, uh, human uh, we want to communicate uh, our feelings and ideas with others because human life is a perpetual expression of uh, oneself in different forms. The problem often is that in order to make people understand us, in order to communicate, we end up uh, expressing our alignment with the pedestals uh, that the society has set for ourselves. This uh, in practicality comes from increasing your uh, consumption thresholds, scoring better marks, looking prettier and so on. But the problem with all of these uh, for, uh, a subset of communication is that none of this displays or nuance surely displays or superiority to them with uh, respect to the pedestals that we have set for uh, our society but none of this displays uh, the human inside us the nuance that goes into us doing something language solves this problem by allowing people to understand ourselves rather than our achievements in order to uh, uh, make this happen again we need a medium of exchange of ideas and hence feelings that allows for a much wider bandwidth than these displays because at the end of the day these displays are just as reduced and as physical as looking at oneself in the mirror they don't explain the stream of consciousness that one has and on the basis of lexicon, there are two sets of language that we ex use to express our sentience. First being the traditional spoken and written languages like English, Zulu, Hindi, Mandarin and so on. The second subset of languages that I'd like to discuss in the next episode are languages such as cinema, music, rap, photography and so on. These are not uh, categorized as being languages but as being art by most people. But art uh, at the core is just an attempt to uh, allow people to understand one's ideas and feelings. And in that way art is no different from languages in essence. It is different in form and how we use it but essentially both of them seek to achieve the same purpose. Now the lexicon of traditional spoken and written languages is obviously words. While art uses a uh, lexicon of cameras, of rhythms, harmonies, of flows and so on. That uh, in their respective languages of course. And let's start discussing words now. So words are presets of thought. They give us a starting point for how we uh, want to say something. Combining words into narratives leads to emergent beauty, leads to emergent feelings. Just like combining separate film, uh, frames in a film leads to an emergent story coming into place. Words originate as an attempt to put existing feelings and objects or maybe new objects into words. We'll discuss how this happens later uh, in later parts of the podcast. So... Words uh, tend to have a basic meaning and a higher meaning. 
base uh, base meaning is given by the identity of the language itself so the entire group of people that speak the languages uh, language sorry bestow a base meaning onto a word which is universal for everyone uh these are what uh, people tend to call labels because labels are uh, used in order to allow communication between everyone who uses uses that language but as a result they lack a lot of nuance higher meaning on the other hand hand is bestowed by more and more intimate layers of identity uh so for example while the word pen might uh, is does have a base meaning it is an instrument used for writing uh, physically but uh, for a group of friends or uh, some other circle it might be that pen is also an inside joke and has a certain context attached to it and all a uh, higher meaning comes from context being attached to thought presets that is of course words higher meaning is the reason that certain memes make sense to a certain internet community but don't appear funny to everyone else because that meme has a certain context attached to it that people outside of that identity outside of that shared experience or and shared context just cannot understand this is also the reason that there is uh, a massive gap between uh, the humor of generations because the shared experiences and values that a generation held differ massively from the next generation and the previous generation and as a result the shared context that that generation has for words or signs is also different from the next and the previous generation an interesting fact uh, related to this is that couples with more private languages with more uh, nicknames and context attached to uh, presets of thought were found to be happier in a study than those who didn't have this sort of context i personally would like to reason that the reason for this is because a lack of context not only signifies just that it also signifies a lack of shared experiences or at least a lack of shared investment in those shared experiences uh and in his book about psychedelics michael pollan talks about how difficult it is for someone who has never taken psychedelics to understand how taking them the experience of tripping on lsd or psilocybin is the reason for that uh, i mean he says that explaining psychedelic uh, your trip on psychedelics is like putting a tribal man in the middle of manhattan for 3 hours then taking him back to his village and asking him to explain uh, his trip to manhattan to uh, his tribe that obviously is a very difficult problem one which uh, most perhaps cannot be solved because the presets one or language has doesn't support such massive difference in states of consciousness so trying to explain an alternative state of consciousness one feels while tripping is a behemoth task and perhaps one that is almost impossible uh, save save for the emergent nature of language so by constructing a piece of art say a uh, 
an essay, a poem or film, you might be able to communicate how uh, an altered state of consciousness feels but not by uh, using the presets themselves. You need to have strong emergent properties in the narrative you build around your feelings on, on the psychedelic trip. And in order to build that narrative, what we need are words with base meaning that don't fall, uh, then do base meaning that doesn't contradict itself when trying to create a narrative of that sort. For example, if we want to explain that uh, a psychedelic uh, trip feels like, uh, say, a, a lot of colors coming in front of your eyes, uh, and even if we want to show that on camera, we first need to have the word red or the image of a sign of word red to start building that narrative. And finding words with uh, a common base meaning that allows for construction of complex emergent narratives is hard. And that is also the reason that labels are uh, so frowned upon. Because the people who's the set of people who speak a certain language is so wide is so vast has so many different experiences that finding words for so that all of them can create emergent narratives to explain their experiences and feelings is uh, becomes a very difficult task for example to explain even what music is, people have such different experiences with music that it is impossible to determine whether music is the human voice, it is a set of instrument. What music is becomes extremely difficult. I personally uh, believe that music are the sounds uh, that someone produces and not what is represented by the sounds. And that is the reason music is often uh, colloquially called the universal language because the symbolic representation of that sound uh, doesn't carry a lot of meaning when you are listening to a song at least uh, from a musical point of view and not a... Uh, rap or lyrical point of view that appeals to higher parts of our brain. Even to find a base meaning for something as simple as say a sandwich is extremely hard. In fact, uh, there was a court case done by Panrav on, I don't know how, how uh, that company's name was pronounced, it was Qdoba or something. Because they were selling sandwiches near the Panrav's own sandwich shop. But the problem was that uh, Qdoba was selling burritos. But uh, Panrav uh, sued Qdoba because they said that burritos are just a form of sandwich. And in fact, there is a massive debate around what uh, constitutes a sandwich. Another example of uh, how hard it is to put uh, feelings into labels and how unjust labels are when communicating with more intimate uh, layers of identity is that uh, when you ask a patient about their symptoms especially uh, with relation to a mental disorder it becomes extremely hard to diagnose them say for ADD or depression because DSM-5 does uh, give you a set of symptoms but those the, uh, set of symptoms are so loose, uh, it is not possible for the patient or the uh, physician to understand the depth of those symptoms. Uh, because, I mean, uh, 
a simple uh, way to overcome this is by using better emergent uh, narratives for example if you want to explain to someone what schizophrenia is it is better to uh, show them uh, a movie like Uh, the beautiful mind rather than explaining in th- them through purely academic literature because uh, we need uh, the emergent the emergent ideas and feelings from academic literature aren't uh, apparent to everyone but those from mo- films are apparent to everyone because we are more normalized to films something i discussed in the previous podcast about how uh, we have a lot of science graduates and undergraduates yet not a lot of pe- uh, people are even able to uh, penetrate the vast body of science due to a lack of being able to read research papers in order to overcome this problem of putting uh, pre-existing ideas and feelings and objects and new objects to uh, labels and words with base meanings basically presets of thought we have lexicographers people whose entire job is to give uh, definitions of objects and feelings in uh, which have the uh, highest amount of imagen potential possible their importance can be inferred from wittgenstein words where he said the limits of my language mean the limits of my world so how lexicographers come up with words and define them uh, sets the boundaries of how much we can communicate with the set of people that we share a language with lexicographers are the philosophers which try to do justice to the necessary well of having labels and pre or presets of thought and their job is expe- especially uh, important because again or vocabulary or verbiage is in the limit of our communication it is the limit of our own thought because in order to understand on our own feelings we need to put them to uh, words just like feynman uh, kept telling us to do dictionaries don't facilitate the speech they facilitate thought itself so from that discourse we can uh, conclude that words are not just representation of external and internal objects they are also placeholders for context bestowed upon those objects and as a result uh, along with other factors such as speech having elements like comedy like satire like sarcasm irony and of course inside jokes which just come from context speech becomes extremely nuanced and not very simple it becomes hard for someone who doesn't belong to a certain identity whatever that identity may be to understand what people mean uh, when they use certain words because he may not ju- ju- not just he's incapable of understanding the context that leads to uh, inside jokes he is also not able to understand the context of the satire the context of the irony uh, since uh, the form of comedy the type of irony a generation uses keeps on changing just like the context bestowed upon presets of words does the inability to understand uh, each others uh, true feelings due to uh, a lack of context on to the words used to or, or uh, form the emergent narrative or the tone of uh, 
nor sarcasm present in that emergent narrative uh the friction that is caused by this leads to uh the emotion of offense and offense is central to our discussion of languages because it is the first reason of censorship which is literally the elimination of some sort of emergent narrative from uh discourse public or personal and the second reason being inform uh, misinformation anyway colloquially we all know offense uh, what offense is it is the negative emotions it is the set of negative emotions we feel when among curses or acts bigoted which i discussed in the previous episode bigot isn't a objective term it ch- changes massively depending upon the values of the person using the term but uh, and as a result the definition of offense what it is what this it is very loose and i'd like to explore the construct of offense the emotion of offense in a little more depth so to begin the discussion i'd like to uh, explore where this offense originates from it is obvious that it is not the uh, way or eardrums vibrate to the air from the speaker's vo- vocal cord that leads to a sense of negative emotions it is what uh, those vibrations represent it is what those words and signs represent that leads to offense uh but uh, the set of uh, uh, signs and representations that constitute violence i'd like to say collectively only represent one thing which is different forms of social exclusivity it is when or need for social inclusivity or need for appreciation acknowledgement validation gets hurt that we feel insulted that we feel offended the second reason here uh, one might refute is that it is a friction between the set of values someone has but even when our values are not acknowledged are excluded are uh, are not uh, are depreciated even then we feel like a part of ourselves because identity uh, does constitute values it feels like our identity is being threatened when someone attacks our values and as a result we feel offended uh, the british philosopher david arkne had said that an insult conveys an opinion since it has semantic content or meaning but it often serves as a social act to belittle with belittle here of uh, obviously referring to what i call social exclusivity even when we don't agree with the insult for example if someone calls you a sexual deviant you de- don't necessarily need to agree with that insult or it then need to be true for you to feel offended because it is not the semantic meaning of an insult that ma- uh, makes us feel offended it is what uh, the uh, the act of the person excluding us from their social group or in some form uh, showing some sort of social exclusivity that leads to us being offended now the reason we have this emotion in the first place where we act negative when someone attacks or values or identity as i have previously discussed previously discussed is that in order to stay together 
tribes needed to have a set of values and beliefs which didn't need to change because tribes lived for the most part in the same sort of conditions and in those conditions a rigid set of beliefs and practices allowed for the highest level of social well-being but in the developed world when uh, in the modern world when everything around us just so rapidly we cannot rely on a rigid set of beliefs and practices to uh, to uh, keep us uh, in line with the world to elevate our social well-being but uh, the emotion of offense was which tribes felt when someone tried to change the beliefs and views of the tribe in when which uh, someone from the tribe felt when they were being socially excluded still continue to this day because uh, or by these emotions are uh, originate from the limbic system which is literally the deepest part of our brain the most primitive and the oldest part of our brain but even though the emotion is evolutionary uh, evolutionary uh, and not social evolutionary and social emotions uh, i am deriving from the work of uh, psycho uh, g professor genie sai which is obviously emotions that come from uh, our biological systems and emotion which uh, come from us trying to mimic uh, the culture around us even if offense is an evolutionary emotion it is not necessarily something which we cannot control uh this is what uh, genie sai calls the ideal effect value of an emotion it is how our culture uh expects us to uh, respond to a certain stimuli to a certain emotion how it wants us to express our emotions uh that affects how we express our emotions more so than how we actually feel them for example japanese people are stone faced while watching gruesome content with someone else but when they watch it alone they are uh, they react disgusted and grossed out just like everyone else does the reason they uh, don't express their emotions outwards is because the ideal affect value of that stoic uh, reaction to uh an extreme form of content is the ideal effect value for the japanese con- uh, culture they put emotional numbness on an emotional pedestal so what are the natural and ideal effect values of offense the natural uh, effect please obviously it is a yes no uh, state the natural value and yes offense is evolutionary there is no denying it but at the same time its ideal effect value can be extremely high and extremely low to understand that let us uh, discuss the richard nisbet study so what richard nisbet did is, is he called a set of southern american students and a set of uh, northern american students and he asked them to fetch a file from the end of a corridor when they went to fetch that file they uh, there was a plant by nisbet who would bump into the students and uh, make it difficult for them to get the file and then curse at them or swear at them or or call them words or something like that what uh, the st- and after the students were done doing this they came back they filled a questionnaire before and uh, 
detector and doing that and their cortisol levels were measured and basic physical examination was also done what uh, nisbet observed was that students from the south acted extremely stressed when they were uh, exposed to the stimuli of one uh, acting like that but at the same time students from the north were what he uh, termed as amused and fascinated the reason students from the south were so offended lies in uh, the uh, fact that cultures in the american south are primarily cultures of honor cultures of honor are cultures where uh, let's just say if you were uh, going on the road and someone beats you up it is you whose social reputation goes down and the person who beat you uh, beats you up their social uh, social status goes up because honor is of, of uh, biologically associated with strength the reason uh, certain cultures are cultures of honor is that uh, these cultures were uh, primarily the people in the american south came from scottish highlands or, or some uh, barren place in uk and since the lands there were barren they had to rely on animals for their livelihood now when you rely on animals for your livelihood your entire asset is always up for grabs because no matter how weak a farmer is it is far more uh, it requires far more uh, power for someone to steal land than it does to steal animals and also it is easier to retake one's own land than it is to retake one's own animals as a result these cultures uh, developed uh, into a culture of honor where if someone insults you it is an extremely stressful situation where you have to respond to that insult by insulting them again on the other hand uh, the students from the american north didn't come from cultures of honor so being insulted was something amusing and fascinating to them from that study it becomes obvious that even to have uh, offense is most probably if probably an evolutionary emotion the expression of this emotion is uh, saved by a, the culture one belongs to to a high degree and in other words that means that offense can be suppressed the problem is that in our society taking offense has become a virtue as ricky gravis satirically said uh, just because you are offended doesn't mean you are right but uh, in uh, our new age culture the ideal effect value of taking offense is extremely high to the point it has become an ideological culture of honor being offended as a thing automatically makes you the better party because people who get offended at things are regarded as being more virtuous than those who don't take offense and allow this course to take place without bringing their own values and biases to censor this course it has got to the point that when uh, rapper the baby killed a person his image wasn't his public image wasn't as hurt as when he uttered some homophobic opinions and slurs people 
try to attack the baby's life or livelihood more when he put out uh, homophobic opinions than when he literally saw the person in a Walmart, which uh, from a third person point of view uh, appears to be an extremely weird situation where, where homophobes are literally worse than people uh, who are murderers, uh, convicted murderers, by the way. But uh, the ideal effect value of taking offense is uh, so high that, uh, again, anyone's livelihood would be attacked more if uh, they are homophobic or aren't in line with it, uh, uh, the values of a certain group than if they kill someone who belongs to that certain group itself. The justification of this increase in the ideal effect value of offense is that certain uh, the usage of certain words leads to lower social well-being. For example, using the word fat as an insult or insulting fat people leads to an increase in depression rates in fat people. Now the studies which do prove this are uh, correlation studies and not causation based studies. But even if we discount that, uh, the sentiment does feel justified at first. But uh, most pyramid schemes and high intensity painkillers also seem justified at first unless you um, up till the point that you become a heroine addict or you have lost all your uh, uh, net worth or maybe both of them if you are uh, dumb uh, enough to fall for both of them. To understand the issue with why anti-fat seeming is absurd, let's understand why we fat seem in the first place. So certain identities possess some sort of trait, uh, the replication of which would lead to lower social well-being. And in order to uh, stop the replication of uh, the traits these identities possess, we socially exclude them and denormalize those identities and as a result, those traits. In the case of fat seeming, when we uh, fat same people, it incentivizes them in a way to be more fit. There is, there is an episode of uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where this is portrayed very literally as to how uh, fat seeming often leads people to at least try to be more fit. Now, it is uh, again debatable whether being obese is equal to being uh, uh, being unhealthy, but I personally believe and most of uh, scientific uh, literature up till uh, this point does point out to the fact that yeah, being obese does increase the uh, probability of someone being diabetic uh, and several other illnesses. It does increase the likelihood of them setting in. Now, uh, and it, that is the trait that uh, we seem to, uh, we want to not uh, be uh, replicated uh, in our society because fat seeming is a very ancient uh, process and uh, tribes didn't want people to be fat for most of human history we didn't want people who weren't fit who were obese a refutal to this sort of uh, insulting people uh, for possessing a certain trait is that people have dispositions against something like fitness but the problem is that people have dispositions against every single character trait. For example, 
people who are born in uh, in uh, under privileged homes have uh, are disposed against higher levels of consumption as any use uh, studies point out uh, kids who are born in uh, poor households have a much lower probability at success at financial success than those who are born in wealthier families uh, there are uh, dispositions against thought which is that everyone not necessarily possesses uh, creative or abstract king uh, up to the level that everyone else does there are dispositions against fertility in the form of homosexuality and in the form of impotency and there are dispositions against looks so every single trait people are at different levels of starting points to start their journey into that trait so if we started taking into account character dispositions then we wouldn't be able to encourage or discourage any behavior whatsoever in fact health has less difference in the level of competence one has to get on to higher levels of that uh, character trait than in something such as money or creativity so we can't uh, just stop uh, encouraging or discouraging people to be anything because they have different levels of competency at them we need to have uh, th- that is the cost you pay for the benefit of uh, having be- higher social well being that some people wouldn't be able to run as fast as mothers would uh, but when society uh, position itself towards a certain object if towards a certain pedestal overall it leads to um, much more benefits than the cost is now the question is should we encourage and discourage uh, through insults and appreciations the most socialist socially hedonistic and socially uh, expensive traits that might seem like something we should do but the problem is that language doesn't work that way cognitively speaking we can't just decide to remove a word from our verbiage the reason for that is because we need to express negative emotions and to do so we utilize the limbic system swearing comes from the limbic system itself that's why there are so many disorders uh, around swearing where people either can't stop swearing whether they don't even realize that they are swearing constantly and so on because they are tied into the limbic system itself and the reason limbic system is also the reason that we often say stuff that we didn't mean we often insult people uh, in interpersonal relationships even that we didn't want to insult because the limbic system doesn't uh, express or long term views about someone or opinions about someone it just expresses or momentary uh, uh, emotions or impulses if you would and these impulses uh, you aren't going to wait to calculate what is the most socially appropriate uh, so appropriate here not being the politically correct but what will uh, push uh, social being the highest you can't wait to come up with that word, uh, word because the limbic system is in the prefrontal cortex it isn't capable of higher level thinking or we would actually have reptilians walking amongst ourselves because Uh, we share the limbic system with a lot of animals. We don't share the prefrontal cortex. 
an alternative to uh, a catharsis of our negative emotions is by using art but again people also get offended at art and then uh, you have the government suing nwa and people breaking into have those office to uh, kill him and what not but uh, that is just uh, those are just human tragedies and even if we use art to express our negative emotions it is we will still need words to insult someone in the moment for that momentary uh, catharsis of a surge of negative emotions such as when you stab your toe into a door or something and for those momentary impulses we can't decide what word we are going to choose we just choose uh, whatever word comes to our mind because the big system again works in impulses not just that we are cognitively imp uh, uh, incapable of doing it one might also reason that if a culture selectively uh, removes a word from the lexicon no one would be able to even use it uh, momentarily the problem with that line of thought is that there was a paper by some lawyer i don't remember who i couldn't find the paper for this either but uh, he proved that the i don't even remember if he was a lawyer uh, but in the i do remember that there was a paper of this sort where uh, the author prove that using the word baby to acknowledge uh, to signal to your romantic pa partner is detrimental to their well-being the partner's well-being so to re find which identity traits which words alleviate social well-being and uh, which words don't is a very difficult almost impossible if not actually impossible task because as i talked about in earlier sections of the podcast uh the base meaning of a word doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the uh, way the word is used the emergent narrative formed by using that word doesn't need to uh, have uh, even reflect the meaning of that word in a loose sense and as for when words are used very directly without any gent uh, meaning whatsoever that is when you stub your toe into a door and that is beyond beyond your cognitive control and if the culture is to censor that word completely that is beyond the culture's control itself because uh, for example uh uh, uh i know this is very politically incorrect for me to say but i am not referring to someone by the word here but uh, discussing the semantics of it so the word nigger comes from an amalgamation of the word nigger which comes from uh, the latin word for black which was uh, negro so nigger was the word used by the white masters to refer to their uh, slaves and the word negus was used by the ethiopians to refer to their king the amalgamation of the word nigger used by the white masters and the word for an ethiopian king led to uh, the creation of the word nigga because even uh, the african pronunciation of the word nigger uh, was so nigga but uh, like it is uh, 
आई डोंट नीड टू आई कांट ओवर स्टेट हाउ मच पीपल आर डिस्करेज टू यूज द एन वर्ड बिकॉज दे बिलीव इट ग्लोरीफाइज और एंकरेज स्लेवरी इन सेंस और इट सिग्नल्स टूवर्ड्स द एग्जिस्टेंस ऑफ स्लेवरी and it is extremely hard to determine whether that is true because when someone uses the n word you can look at the base meaning and not the higher meaning first of all and even the base meaning of any word is uh, very complex especially when it is related to uh, such serious historical uh, uh, such a serious history Political background and that is among the biggest no-nos for the political uh, politically correct uh, political correctness movement. The PC culture, uh, the N word, and it is of extremely hard to determine whether that even leads to lower so self well-being or uh, whether it doesn't. So uh, again, uh, the conclusion to that is that it is almost impossible for. Just to determine whether a word lowers social well-being, it doesn't, and it is also very hard for individuals to change their lexicon to remove or add some word to their lexicon because it resides in such a primitive part of their brain. In actuality, we tend to denormalize the words for identities as an insulting slur when we start including them into the uh, social uh, social general. so after uh, medical science allowed uh, the survival of babies and the infant mortality rate to climb up the and uh, there was no need to glorify fertility uh, up to uh, a disproportionate extent from our point of view from that point of uh, from the point of view of the people before the modern medical science it was the uh, ideal amount of uh, fertility glorification so from our point of view Uh, after uh, we start uh, including gay people into our society the lgbtq uh, people into our society uh, we start uh, acknowledging that using that term as an insult is uh, not okay in a similar way when obesity levels uh, rise up to 30% in the us uh, the last time i checked and Uh, so many people are obese that we just cannot run our society without including them into the social general and the reason for obesity is obviously the era of abundance that has uh, that was created by capitalism we start including them because by if, if we exclude them society just then be able to function and uh, i forgot to address this uh, particular argument that uh fat people were seen as beautiful in certain cultures the reason for that was fa- uh, being fat signified wealth in an eroska city but after uh, like in most cultures throughout human history fa- uh, fat people were uh, couldn't contribute to labor or something like that and as a result they were looked down upon and to my previous uh, proposition that we uh, insult identities Uh, which possesses a certain trait that lead to lower social well-being it does uh, seem actually good to uh, stop uh, ex- uh, in using words for identities like fat and gay as insults after we have included them to uh, the social general 
but the problem with denormalizing a word for an identity is that denormalizing a word only adds to the weight the word carries weight here obviously being the amount of social exclusion conveyed to understand that let let's uh, think about a pink elephant if you have thought about the pink elephant uh, you need to stop thinking about the pink elephant now it is almost impossible for uh, someone to stop thinking about something especially when they are told not to think about it because forbidden things are tempting due to our love of freedom it is uh, well known that we uh, can't uh, that we love uh, forbidden things even forbidden thoughts the love for freedom uh, here refers to the scarcity principle where just by making a good appear to be exclusive you can put up the says and people will buy it because just because they want to be free to buy it because we uh, as humans love our freedom and as a result asking someone not to do something tempts them to uh, do that more than uh, they ever any silly planning on doing that F- uh, for a practical example of this happening in process the word heaven he- uh, for example heaven ya yeah, carries le- significantly less weight than hell ya yeah, because hell was a word that was denormalized by the church as a result the weight the word carried back then as a means of social exclusion and now as uh, a normal word itself the weight the word carries goes up when you try to denormalize it people think more about gay being an insult when it is pointed out to them that gay is an insult than they originally did now uh, one may refute that even if uh, people aren't aware of them and uh, themselves using gay as an insult it would still hurt the self image of gay people so and that might be true that is most por- probably true i do believe that but the problem is that we can't denormalize a word because uh, or cognitive uh, psychology doesn't allow for that to happen we can't control the slurs we use in the moment we and we also cannot denormalize a slur uh, so uh, as it just adds to the weight it carries what we can do is dilute the association of the w- insult the word as an insult from the underlying identity so the slur gay should be denor- shouldn't be denormalized but it con- its connection to the identity of gay people should be diluted to the point where it becomes non-existent the this process may sound impossible but it uh, but it isn't impossible for example uh, uh, as uh, the landscape of swearing and insults is tri- due to the politically cor- politically correct culture we a lot of people have started using uh, the word retard as an insult now if uh, you insult someone by calling them a retard you need not hate a retarded person or the gro- a group of retarded person when you meet them in fact most people who use the word retard as an insult 
I believe would be uh, quite sympathetic to uh, retarded people. The insult retard is then an attack on the identity. They don't mean to put down retarded people. It is an attack on the object that uh, the word is directed at. The identity isn't being put down. The person who is socially excluded by using that particular word is the one the speaker is trying to put down. For example, when a teenager called a police horse gay, I know because he did because he was arrested for the so in Britain. When he called a police horse gay, he wasn't trying to put down gay people. He was trying to, um, I mean it's funny but he was trying to insult the horse or uh, again insulting is very complex due to com uh, comedy and irony and here meaning but they, there is often a disconnect between the identity and the insult which is almost always overlooked by the politically correct culture. The word for the identity has so much higher meaning as an insult attached to it that the word bifurcates into two words with separate meaning as a representation of uh, the identity and as an uh, insult, as, an, as a word whose semantical meaning is used to uh, socially exclude someone. The, insu the insult retard and the condition of re retardation become two entirely different mental representations altogether. And even in the cases that the speaker means to kick down the identity and not the object that they are targeting. In cases where the object being targeted is the identity itself. The problem is of redundant parasitic memes. The problem is that the person is undereducated, that he is a prisoner of the past. So the Venn diagram of the people who use gay as an insult does contain the subset of people who are actual homophobes and don't differentiate the insult retard or the insult gay from gay people themselves. But... Uh, but I believe the majority of people who use words like retard or gay as an insult aren't people who genuinely hate the identity but are people who use the second, uh, the bifurcated meaning of the identity as an insult. The identity isn't the insult, the word for the identity is just a placeholder for social exclusion. But PC cultures run with the assumption that this is impossible and if someone uses the word gay, they are obviously uh, trying to put down the identity gay implicitly or explicitly. This comes from a process I like to call forced extended interpretation. Forced extended interpretation is when a certain unintended higher meaning is imposed on the usage of a word by the speaker by someone else. So while the speaker uses the word gay, he uses it with the higher meaning the, as an insult. But higher meaning as an identity is bestowed upon that word forcefully by people who... Uh, are trying to make him more politically correct and an example of this happening a rel uh, 
contemporary example of this happening is how people enforce the certain higher meaning on to the logo of uh, the company mintra the brand mintra even when the brand didn't uh, believe in the higher meaning themselves and neither did most or almost all of the people who ever saw that logo now people from this uh, culture of offense from this politically correct culture force uh, a certain higher meaning on to the insult in order to target actual homophobes in order to change actual homophobes into being more exclusive which will lead to higher social well-being and i do believe that their intention is well placed but someone else also has uh, well placed intentions which are the people who use the word uh, gay as an insult without targeting the identity with no intention of hurting the identity just like politically correct people uh, i mean uh, extremely politically correct people who enforce their beliefs on to everyone else but what happens when uh, people start targeting uh, i mean these uh, pc people start targeting people for using the word gay or any other slur as an insult gay here is an example it is not the only word uh, that is censored by politically correct people when uh, they try to set up actual homophobes which is a the sentiment of changing actual homophobes is uh, very noble when they try to do that they often end up targeting people who are not actual homophobes but because the people who were just using gay or whatever as an insult are targeted for never uh, are uh, termed as being homophobes labeled homophobes even though they never wanted to hurt uh, gay people they end up actually becoming homophobes just out of this interaction with politically correct people so the uh, method politically correct people use to cure homophobes paradoxically ends up creating even more homophobes not only that extended interpretation has more problems that we have previously touched upon in this episode for example when we denormalize slurs it adds more weight to them which leads to even more social exclusion being associated with them and if someone wants to uh, exploit extended interpretation which is done subtly or uh, unconsciously even what happens is that you can prove that the word baby is actually counterproductive you can prove that uh, the word am written in a certain form is actually uh, counterproductive to social well-being in fact the extended interpretation uh, process that the political correctness culture indulges in is uh, absurd to a degree that it reminds me of the point system in the sitcom good place uh, where the basic premise of the sitcom is uh, there is uh, a heaven and hell where uh, and people are uh, scored throughout their lives as to whether they will end up in the good place heaven or the bad place 
एंड स्पॉयलर है सो स्किप अबाउट ए मिनट लेटर बट वॉट इज रिवील्ड लेटर इन द सीरीज इज दैट द सिस्टम इज सो डिस्टॉटेड इन द मॉडर्न वर्ल्ड दैट इवन वेन समन्स एंटायर लाइफ इज एन एल्ट्रुस्टिक जर्नी दे वु स्टिल एंड अप बींग इन द बैड प्लेस बाय रिलेशन टू समन फॉर एग्जाम्पल दे आर ईटिंग समथिंग whose seeds were taken from a fruit that was grown by a farmer using pesticides which killed weeds so uh, in that series the modern world is the the uh, point system for the good place and the bad place to a point that everyone was evil by a forced extension in a similar manner if uh, uh, by extended interpretation any word or any emergent narrative can be proven to be socially detrimental a refutal to this is that we should judge the intent of the speaker so we don't uh, denormalize the slur or we don't uh, prove uh, everything wrong and create actual homophobes we just uh, exclude people we just uh, quote unquote cancel people who are actually homophobe the problem with this line of thought is first of all it is impossible to determine the intent of a speaker you may claim that it is in apparent in their tone what they meant it is apparent in uh, their accents what they meant but speech is such a complex thing that it is it becomes impossible to determine the uh, intent of a speaker it because they may be uh, ironic uh, post irony isn't apparent to anyone not even the speaker they may be uh, metaphorically speaking they may be using that narrative uh, as some symbolic uh, display it may be satire so it is impossible the there's only one channel of judging the intent of the speaker at that uh, and that channel is through the speaker's testimony itself and if you are trying to cancel someone they are never going to say that they were saying what, what they are being canceled for they can always just say that that wasn't their intent so judging someone in someone's intent is actually extremely hard if not impossible and even if you don't agree and say that you are uh, you are always correct at judging people's higher meaning their irony their sarcasm their satire which maybe you are uh, i don't know how you'll do it without uh, mapping all of their neurons and what not setting up people or socially excluding people for hating a certain identity doesn't solve any problem it just increases the intensity of the problem that you were trying to solve what i mean by that is if someone was an homophobe it was a homophobe and you forcefully set them up that is not going to turn them into a saint that is going to turn them into a closeted homophobe and they will find a community of homophobe and end up in an echo chamber where they will keep uh, hearing echoes and validation of their beliefs and it will only intensify it will only create extremists and won't solve the problem that you set out to solve it is 
because it is impossible to suppress someone's thoughts to a point that they forget that they had those thoughts in the first place that can be uh, uh, again the thought experiment pink think about a pink elephant and now stop thinking about a pink elephant it is impossible to do it when it is forbidden it is only more tempting to do it another uh, uh, a scientific study that shows how it is almost impossible to use repression of certain thoughts to exterminate those thoughts is was done on religious and secular teens where teens the uh, teens and young adults belonging to religious communities which uh, repressed the sexual thoughts and behaviors were more indulged in those thoughts than uh, teens and young adults who came from uh, secular communities what i'm basically mean is that repression of thoughts leads to radicalization of the person having those thoughts for uh, an actual case of this is how uh, a, a military psychologist nidal malik hasan killed people when his uh, religious uh, feelings were being he felt were being repressed in the military so repression of feelings can actually radicalize people well even when uh, when they find eco chambers to a point that they actually end up killing people they went from being homophobe to they might um, i am not suggesting that they always would but there is a probability that repression would radicalize them so must that they end up killing people actually killing people but i don't even know if uh, the politically correct per- uh culture is very interested in people being killed or staying alive as again the case of the baby killing someone wasn't as bad as him being homophobic was so maybe if uh, someone actually is repressed to the point that they kill someone the politically correct culture wouldn't mind as much as when they say something homophobic so do i mean to suggest that we let homophobes be homophobic uh in action no in ideology yes because setting up a certain ideology wouldn't exterminate that ideology it would only radicalize them so we can let them talk we can try to educate them but we shouldn't allow them to bring their discrimination into practice in any manner other than speech itself because even if you look at the history of the lgbtq struggle they didn't go out and kill people and they didn't set up people either what they did was use their first amendment rights their right to free speech to speak what they were feeling and as a result they were able to get rights now for a community that got rights by using free speech to challenge social norms it seems very ironic that they are so obsessed with setting people up even when the only reason that they are able to set people up is because no one set them up when they were using their own free speech rights there's even an episode of south park that deals with the subject of how homophobes are as oppressed in our society as gay people were once and one may refute that homophobes are more socially detrimental to our society at this point of time than gay people 
and that may be true but in order to test the validity of the truth of that statement we need to give everyone at least a right to speak not of action but of speech just like was given to gay people when the uh, lgbtq rights struggle began and again not only setting up uh, homophobes uh, detrimental to both I mean, it intensifies the feelings of actual homophobes, and it in the people who weren't homophobes the first place ends uh, end up becoming homophobes. Not only that, again, it is impossible to judge intent of someone when they uh, when the only source of judging it is their own uh, their own testimony. So, given that act A can be insincere about X. and he can be insincere about his sincerity about x it is absolutely impossible to judge the intent because it is an infinite regression for example if someone says i am literally going to kill you this is not a joke they might later tell you that the sincerity was of the statement was just used as the comedic device and again that's infinite repression and if someone wants to censor comedy that against runs to the problem that first of all you radicalize people by doing that and second of all we don't need to cut out more and more uh, mediums of exchanging feelings of exchanging ideas because that is the primary human struggle of using the of using a or language to express or nuance but also it is the only way that we can come together and synthesize ideas and lead to our society becoming a much better place but people from the politically correct culture believe that they can understand intent they can understand higher meaning they can understand the intent of a comedian because i don't know they have been blessed with some uh psychic psychic powers that other people haven't been and they can use their psychic powers to change language in their own image which will lead to a dystopia where everyone is included because they also have super human uh, capabilities of knowing which words lead to how much so sel uh, uh, elevation and how uh, does uh, is it socially counterproductive now i am not sure if they are uh, psychics with super powers although i do believe that they must be if uh, there's any internal consistency between in amongst their ideas but from what i have demonstrated about how complex fluid and uncontrollable language is and i'll discuss more about how language naturally involves in the later parts of this podcast i i am given to understand that they need to be super pa- word psychics uh, if they are true to themselves but uh, in carlin's words political correctness is fascism pretending to be uh, be manners which is something that ties into the horse shoe theory that is extremely liberal pc people and extremely fascist uh, nazis both can't bear anything differing differing from their own values and lines of thought and also both of them think of themselves as super powered psychics an example of uh, horseshoe theory a very uh, relevant example is how antifa which is le- literally anti fascist league acts up so much like nazis that it is 
absolutely impossible to differentiate them from Nazis if they stop wearing black and start doing salutes. Similarly, liberal censor so much, I am not able to understand how they are, their action is any different from that of a totalitarian regime. They might justify that as being that they are quote-unquote including people uh, and quote-unquote uh, elevating social well-being but I have demonstrated to, through the uh, parts, uh, through the podcast that unless they actually believe themselves to be p- psychic superpowers it is not in their capabilities to use language in the way that they can uh, el- uh, change the landscape of society the uh, previous uh, the other groups which believe in such uh, powers uh, in the possession of uh, pa- such powers uh, in themselves are people such as the nazis and other totalitarian regimes and in order to do this both liberals and extremist totalitarian regimes uh, use censorship that is they censor certain parts of language of discourse in general and ultimately emergent thought itself the problem here is obviously we can't solve problems that we are censored to discuss for example gay rights wouldn't have come into existence if uh, a totalitarian regime that believed that excluding gay people would universally lead to higher levels of social well-being kept uh, the right of free speech from gay people. We can only solve problems if we can discuss them and we can only discuss problems if uh, there is uh, a minimal amount of censorship. But before discussing censorship itself, I would like to address the second reason that governments and people tend to, generally governments but also people tend to censor information, tend to censor discourse, that is misinformation. Now misinformation has been uh, become a bigger and bigger uh, topic in the recent years because of a surge of people using the internet which aren't equipped with uh, the proper tools required to understand uh, decipher information on the internet because the on the internet it is very easy to distribute misinformation because everyone is practically connected to everyone else merriam webster defines in misinformation as false inaccurate or misleading information Keep in mind that I will use the terms false, inaccurate and misleading interchangeably from now on. It goes without saying that in order to censor misinformation, we need to prove that it's false, inaccurate or misleading. And fact-checking information might seem like a simple task because there are literally websites that do that. But... uh, let us go through a story to understand how uh, doing that might not be so easy. So, once there were five brothers in a village and f- all of them were blind. An elephant came into the village and all of them went to touch the elephant in order to deduce what it was through the senses available to them. One brother grabbed the elephant's trunk, another grabbed its teeth, one grabbed its stomach, one its nail, and one its tail. When the elephant went away and they were discussing what the elephant was like, one of them said that it was hard like concrete and had a curve. 
another one of them said that they it did have a curve but it was very thin and it was very uh, soft uh, another one refuted by saying the elephant was very large and behemoth like someone else said that yes it was concrete like but it appeared to be uh, thin somewhat thin and uh, i mean you do get the point that everyone has their subjective re- experience of the objective uh, object the elephant was in epistemology this is called perspectivism where each person has a different subjective experience of the same objective reality in other words everyone's uh, someone experience someone's experience of x may be 9 while someone other's experience of it may be 6 and both are equally valid since they are both subjective experiences now you may refute by saying that knowledge and tefra is like science art or religion try overcoming this uh, subjective experience by uh, putting forth an objective reality through various means and for example uh, it is true from a knowledge enterprise like science puts forth the idea that the sun is in the middle of the solar system and it is undeniable but at the same time if we were having this debate 500 years ago you would say that the knowledge enterprise of religion supports forth the idea that the earth is at the center of the universe and none of our subjective experiences of the earth could change that and the comparison of science and uh, religion might seem preposterous as first i mean um and that is a given considering that we live in a world where science is uh, an aid to the primary religion of modernism but not only the modern scholars use science as undeniable truth just like pre-modern scholars did with religion uh I mean the difference is uh, there is that difference that science uses empiricism while religion employs faith but the shortcomings of faith i believe are more acknowledged than the shortcomings of empiricism which are completely overlooked by everyone literally everyone in the modern world for so let's talk about empiricism to understand which shortcomings i'm talking about So there is a Turkish theory that uh, later got rewritten as an American theory and uh, an Indian theory as well. So the essentially the story is that there once was a chicken which was uh, well fed and maintained for one thousand days. Every day it was fed to its heart's content and treated with utmost respect. it believed that from all the data and evidence available to him he deduced that humans loved and respected him as one of their own then on the 1001th day the chicken woke up and he was slaughtered brutally by the people uh, for their thanksgiving meal i'm sorry the story involved uh, turkey i said chicken uh, but anyway the same limitation empiricism faces that no matter how accurate our analysis is even if it is flawless we are always limited to the evidence we have at our disposal to conf- and 
the problem is that to confirm the nature of any post-steroid truth, we need an infinite trials in order to deduce what will happen an infinite amount of times. For and on a mathematical level, the probability of A being an outcome of Fx is 1 only when you have an infinite amount of the, uh, trials uh, of x which always yield the result a so, and only then is the probability of a that's happening zero the only and you might say that if you take a glass and you uh, pu uh, do, put it upside down obviously water will fall out of it but that is again based on the evidence that we have all of it billions of data points we have about confirming gravity all of them are internally consistent but there it is not necessary that they will be consistent with the billionth and net result that we get uh, if you want to understand this problem more in depth look at Grettier's 1960s paper where in his short paper he was a able to debase thousands of years of philosophical inquiry on what knowledge is with a simple paradox that it is impossible to have a true justified belief which is the which was the uh, agreed upon definition of knowledge uh, back then it is impossible to at least he implied it is impossible to have a true justified belief unless you have an infinite amount of trials testing that belief and since we are limited by time uh, as we will end when our universe ends, ends eventually, we will never have an infinite amount of trials and hence uh, empiricism while pragmatically true logically falls apart when you look at that. And you might refute that if it is pragmatically working, what is the point in challenging it? But the same goes for religion as well. It Faith only logically falls apart. People who believe in faith don't necessarily are uh, have lower levels of happiness or have higher rates of depression than people who believe in science. In fact, they have lower levels of depression and higher rates of happiness. For tribes and monks, they have higher levels of happiness even though they believe in faith and not science. So pragmatically speaking, faith actually is more viable than science. But science does come with the promise that eventually we will reach a point uh, I'm taking the transhumanist meta-narrative here, but eventually we will reach a point where we are more uh, happier than if we continued relying on faith. And it is, uh, I don't know if we will reach that point, I'll discuss it in the episode on artificial intelligence, but the uh, what we were discussing, uh, what I was trying to portray that empiricism is just uh, has its shortcomings, just like faith and uh, comparing science and religion isn't preposterous. I see, uh, I think stands uh, true. And even now, you might refute that science does, and science and data do give better results in policy matters, but the problem is that. We measure the benefits of data by analyzing data. That has the same validity as measuring the truth in God's words by using God's words. If the thesis you are testing is tested using the thesis that is being tested, it results in infinite regression. If you are judging the intent of the speaker by his own statement about its intent, 
it's infinite regress and the same goes for judging the validity of a thesis by using the thesis you are judging the validity of so all conjectures whether they be scientific artistic religious they are just glory glorified conjectures maybe they are better pragmatically maybe they are logically somewhat more viable but actually they, none of them are logically viable they are just less logically inviable they are less wrong not more right because none of them can be right let's say we have an infinite amount of trials under the some empiricism unless we actually have a god uh, and all controlling be come for and give us evidence of his powers we can't actually test or hypothesis we can only use the thesis we are testing to test the validity of the thesis itself which again is just infinite regression and the scientific method itself is a thesis now i am not saying science is better or worse than religion possibly in the future it will serve us more than religion would have ever served us and in the present we also know that uh, pre developed the people who live a pre developed uh, non modern lifestyle like monks and tribes do have exceptionally high happiness rates but i am not uh, it is not in my capacity to judge which one of them is a better enterprise of knowledge uh, what i can say is that believing in an undeniable truth within our reach whether through religion science faith art empiricism whatever is just uh, a coping mechanism for a lack of our ability to actually find an undeniable objective truth all objective truths are again less subjective they are not more objective because objective is a yes no state either you are objective or you are not subjectiveness can be measured in terms of magnitude so all scientific conjectures and all say religious conjectures are just uh, subjective uh, less and less subjective truths what is undeniable however is logic the problem with logic being absolutely objective is it that is that it often has zero pragmatic value whatsoever so knowing about the gratier's problem doesn't make you happier and neither does it application in any way so logic is very good for uh, having discussions but logic isn't any good if those discussions are relevant to the state of the of things around you it is only logic is good if you want to do it over the not if you want to understand the things around yourself this belief in an undeniable objective truth comes from the abrahamic faith so yesli was believed that they knew everything that was true in this world and they could use that thesis to be the happiest in the world that obviously didn't turn out very well in the long run but i just wanted to point that out since i'll be coming back to this in the future in the in a minute so does this entail that i'm a flat earther my disbelief in empiricism i pretty sure i would never identify as a flat earther but what i am trying to say is that flat earthers shouldn't be set up i suppose they are right 
but the right i support uh, they obviously will exploit to say things that are stupid to me extremely dumb but uh, i wouldn't shut up but just because they say stupid things uh, because 500 years ago saying that uh, sun was at the center of the universe appeared dumb to most people yet uh, and people were shut up for saying so it is only because they uh, some of their work survived that we were able to uh, bring so much progress in science so setting up people that challenge the status quo no matter how dumb they sound even if they say that vaccines do cause autism i believe that we should let that play in the background as obnoxious and annoying noise then to uh, set them up completely but coming back to truth so does this entail that we need live with the notion that there is no truth whatsoever we can't do that because believing that there can be no truth would lead to anarchy and also we all appreciate some certainty uh, in our world view so i suggest that we live with the notion of a pragmatic truth taleb said in his book black swan that anything can be proven with enough dedication we need to make what we prove uh, i mean i believe that what we prove needs to be more favorable to the human condition for example all self help speakers or motivational speakers on a surface level do make sense but none of their uh, per, uh, none of their schemes or whatever they like to label their beliefs and practices are as pragmatically beneficial as buddha's vipassana or buddha's nirvana was because proving anything isn't a challenging task making that favorable to the human condition is so rather than search trying to uh, prove things it more and uh, more sorry less and less subjectivity we should focus on coming up with uh, agreed upon truths consensus that lead to uh, higher social well-being are more pragmatic pragmatic here always refers to something that uh, i mean in uh, this particular test it refers to something that elevates uh, our social well-being because now uh, to elevate this social well-being what we should do is if everyone tries to accommodate as many identities and people into the social general as they personally can without being affected by redundant uh, parasitic memes without self negl- negligence and without pathological altruism if everyone does this and conveys this properly through language the general consensus becomes the one in which the highest amount of people are included into the social general in the context in the example in the instance of flat earthers this means that we should let them uh, speak about whatever they are speaking about and if we are able to educate children properly they wouldn't uh, the general consensus should never be that yeah the earth is flat that is obviously an expression of under education and even i mean in the future they might be true i am not suggesting i believe they would be but from past experiences we never know what would or what wouldn't be true what i am saying is is 
that in order for the invisible mind to work in the ideal way which is to reach uh that uh pragmatic truth highest level of social inclusivity possible we must uh educate children properly education should be how government controls discourse not censorship and education should just facilitate thought it should not regulate it because that will lead to dogmatism and censorship i have discussed throughout this podcast what that leads to government should teach children basics of the world of policies from a certain curriculum and this curriculum should be dynamic and not rigid also what is extremely important is that children must not memorize this curriculum but be allowed to explore alternatives in a similar way that uh, people in ancient india didn't uh, memorize or believe in a then uh, religious truths they explore dharma and that's why at least uh, the bharat uh, bharatiya civilization they didn't have this notion of an undeniable objective truth the notion we actually had was of this pragmatic truth only this uh, memorizes then truth uh, paradigm of education is a western influence in itself now i'm not saying that uh, young children should be exposed to divergent truth and so be told about how there is no objective truth in the world but they should be uh, eased into the, uh, the fact that there is no certainty about truth in this world and we should be leave uh, we should try to include as many people as possible under the guidance of a capable teacher uh so in summation education should give children a general world view give them an ability to decipher media properly because people on the internet people watching television they need to have at least basic knowledge of media these if they want to exist in this world otherwise it becomes extremely easy for or redundant parasitic memes or parasitic memes of what were sought to take hold of their being and turn them to so uh turn them into i'd say purposeless uh, propagators of ideologies i discussed this in the second uh, no i think the third 2.2 episode the podcast the second part of the second episode the podcast other than that education should make them uh, know the importance of having an individual world view and the demerits of a mimetic world view it should make them apparent about uh, it should make policies apparent to them make them competent enough to penetrate knowledge bases not just of science but of art and religion that would uh, entail for example teaching them how uh, the camera shows the world how musical composition world works in order for them to be able to understand the feelings being expressed by people using those mediums of communication so when an african american for example when kendrick lamar lamar raps about the black struggle on to pimp a butterfly one must have the ability to penetrate and understand his music in order to be able to understand why it is impossible to include african americans into the social general and what they go through lastly education should uh, impart uh, the notion that the importance of understanding one thing is a lot more than knowing 50 because on the internet knowing 50 things has zero value 
you since knowing 50 things first of all you forget most of them because none of them pass through into the long term memory gateway but also most of those 50 things may turn out to be wrong but when you develop understanding or around a subject you reach pragmatic truths rather than ready made truths that one else is uh, uh, serving you uh, again that is and those are uh, memes if you don't have an individuality so that ties back into two of the previous points now let's explore how education can be used as a cope against misinformation in practice in a practicable sense let's take the example of anti-vaxxers who ironically are autistic themselves uh, i mean in my opinion obviously they act autistic for real but uh People believe in anti-vaccination because their kid or some kid they know is both autistic and vaccinated. Now, I don't think I need to point out that there is a lack of understanding of correlation and causality in these people. They don't know the concept of mutual exclusivity and they definitely don't know about a cause-benefit analysis. But... Uh, regardless of that if you try to tell them about such things they end up citing the infamous paper by Andrew Wakefield Andrew Wakefield argued that there was a link between the MMR vaccine and autism not only was the paper torn down in peer review it was later found that an anti-vaccine organization paid Wakefield $800,000 for this paper. It supplied him with subjects and there were uh, more than a dozen ethical violations like not getting permissions to experiment on uh, on the subjects, selectively test, uh, recruiting subjects to prove a point and so on. The practices involved in that study were extremely to the point that Wakefield, Wakefield's license was revoked as a result. The paper was also redacted. But it, the people who cite this paper, uh, I don't think they even know what peer review means. I don't think they know what happens when you selectively uh, select the sample you are using for a study because they just don't have the tools necessary for penetrating the knowledge basis of science. They just go about because they are uh, they are uh, afflicted with this parasitic meme that science is an undeniable truth yet uh, paradoxically they don't even understand how one must read a scientific paper. They go about citing this paper to discard any uh, argument uh, that is given against uh, their uh, pre-held beliefs. The solution to solving this crisis isn't by setting them up because again if you set anti-vaxxers up they will just create an echo chamber and discuss the, these things within themselves. You can't, that would just lead to radicalization and denormalization. The solution is to teach children about correlation and causation, about the what cause benefit and it and doing so in an efficient manner so uh, children are able to understand that just because someone is autistic and they are vaccinated doesn't mean the vaccination caused the autism it means there was a correlation between the vaccination and uh, the uh, autism that they are a patient of 
in conclusion uh, to that uh, segment on education i'd like to say that the invisible mind lays on the foundation of a good education and if the fine, uh, foundation of this uh, uh, education is broken the invisible mind would just fall apart unfortunately we lack a good system of imparting education and as a result we cope with misinformation we cope with uh, diverging beliefs with homophobes through censorship rather than rather than making people competent enough to decipher media and understand that vaccines are don't cause autism we just keep themselves from being exposed to that media we keep people in a bubble or in a bubble space safe space like bubble rather than educating them enough that they can explore things out of the bubble without uh, becoming uh, extremists of some sort this process of filtration of information that we expose people to is called censorship censorship is of two sorts uh, on the basis of the party that is um, doing the censorship executing the process that is cultural or legal cultural censorship uses social exclusion as a means to suppress certain words and lines of thought and uh, legal censorship uses the legal punishment and the legal machinery to do so on a side note i'd like to point out that censorship is very dynamic so suppression of a certain idea or line of thought or piece of information may lead to propagation of that piece of information of that idea more so than it would have propagated if this was it was not censored in the first place this is uh, this is termed the streisand effect in our times most uh, censorship comes in the form of cultural censorship to the form that we even have a cancel culture cancel culture seeks to destroys people's livelihood in the name of uh, political correctness uh, and i'd like to point out that political correctness began as a joke inside uh, leftist circles back in 1970s and later became an actual practice where people set up others by taking their livelihood away from them for example the civis analytics for here uh, david sore for sharing a princeton scholarly article about the futility of protests during the uh, blm uh, protests the reasoning for that was he was trying to weaponize intellectual uh, material in order to create anxiety and keep in mind all he did was share an article by a princeton professor and his job was taken away that isn't very different from people like nidal malik hasan killing people with divergent beliefs because just because someone has diverging beliefs from the black life matters protests and shares a scholarly article about it their livelihood is taken away from them the problem with extremists and uh, political political correctness enjoyers is that they don't question the ideas of a person they t- question the person themselves and uh, going back to our discussion about offense offense only developed as an emotion to keep tribes together 
they lived in a stale condition and so they didn't require constant revision of beliefs or and values for higher levels of social hedonism so they just uh, if someone was trying to question beliefs and practices of the group that allowed for high levels of social hedonism he was excluded but in modern societies we need constant uh, revision to our beliefs and values and with the modern spirit we must differentiate the abstract ideas from the physical person and challenge the abstract ideas if we want to keep up with the changing conditions around ourselves not on a personal level but on a social level if we want to keep up while maintaining a while having a high level of social well being we must question the ideas rather than the person itself but what happens under the this uh, cancel culture is by weaponizing social exclusion through group think and bandwagoning people are ostracized for disagreeing with the malfunctioning unquestionable hive mind of uh, whatever community uh, they challenged so uh, these communities will make you believe that if you disagree with them you are a bad person so you either agree with them or you are excluded which is eerily reminiscent of how tribes acted and again the problem is we are not tribes anymore and in the modern world is widely different from the pre-modern world especially in terms of how important questioning or beliefs and values are but this uh, culture of excluding people for a set of uh, ideas not only does it radicalize the people who are excluded it also leads to a group thing and a highly malfunctioning hive mind in these cultures there is no place for divergent truths only forced uh, and undeniable truths almost to the point that they resemble religion more than anything else and this leads to self censorships and these leads to dogmatism nobody can dare question a protest that this culture agrees with even if the all the person did was share an academic article which was what happened in source incident cancel culture itself is a much bigger problem than it seeks to solve firstly it eliminates discourse or antithesis of the undeniable truth in any form it has got to the point that a third of americans are worried about expressing their political views due to the risk of being fired secondly repression of thoughts for social health in the name of social health creates communities of disillusioned extremists they which uh, end up becoming eco chambers and eventually lead to things like the capital riot because you may exclude uh, keep excluding people who say that the elections were rigged but eventually they will find a commune build a community which will be turned into an eco chamber and lead to radicalization to a point that a terrorist have that such a massive terrorist attack is also um, takes place place 
the solution to this is obviously to let bazaar ideas fly by and use education as a cope against them as a cope against misinformation as a cope against things that seem bigoted or offensive and again bigoted absolutely depends on the values of the speaker it isn't an objective term in the loosest sense whatsoever but we should tr at least try to not culturally use censorship to deal with things because it only worsens problems cancel culture doesn't have the potential to solve problems as huge as the one it has become and the only way it can uh, justify its existence is by ending it and proving that it can solve a problem as big as it is anyway let's discuss the second form of censorship now which is legal censorship so legal censorship uses legal measures to neutralize supposedly unsafe media whether that be conversation ideas films music pieces whatever it seeks to keep people from being exposed to them this can include uh, suppression of ideas on social media sites through deplatforming or through punishment of the person uh, through fines or through uh, incarceration or whatsoever legal censorship often hurts the well-being of a person even more than social uh, cultural censorship because not only is the livelihood of the person taken away he is also put in a cell with convicted uh, murderers and rapists legal censorship has been around for most of human history even back in ancient greece there was a tradition where every 10 years people from ancient greece uh got together and democratically vo voted out who they wanted uh, to uh, leave the city and the person with the most votes had to leave the city for uh, of athens for i think 10 years if i'm not wrong so culture and that that example portrays how cultural and legal censorship are extremely intertwined where if culture portrays one as being a bad person legal censorship ends up acting against that person another example of this is in the black mirror uh, in the i think season 3 episode first of black mirror called nose dive it is an excellent episode a cop uses social exclusion as a means of enforcing law so what he does is he reduces the social media score of a person which is just social validation as a means of enforcing law so law legal and cultural censorship are extremely intertwined and laws are only as efficient as the cultural influences that safeguards the safeguard them for example if a crime isn't a taboo or being a victim of the crime is a taboo it isn't reported in the first place examples being dowry and rape cases respectively cancel culture as a result leads to higher levels of legal censorship and higher level of legal censorship leads to reinforcement of this culture of this environment of self censorship and dogmatism so let's discuss uh, legal censorship in order to understand how we can uh, use legal censorship not as a cope but as a means of social betterment so the purpose for legal censorship is that governments 
want to stop exposure of people to certain unsafe type of media in order to keep them from becoming uh, socially dysfunctional unsafe here means uh, either offensive or misleading the reason governments do this is uh, what psychologists like to call the availability bias where we think more about what we are exposed to than what we are not this is a primary principle of advertisement where if you are exposed to some advertisement enough positively or negatively you will think about that advertisement and if you had a neutral or positive response in the first place you will only think positively about it which psychologists call the mere exposure effect now we have uh, established that censorship is a cope and in a society where people are able to think for themselves the, the availability bias doesn't hurt because uh, if the uh, initial reaction to an idea is negative reinforcement of it wouldn't lead to it becoming a positive idea the person would only hate it more and more so availability bias is only uh, helps when someone had a positive first response to an idea that would allegedly lead to the person becoming uh, socially dysfunctional for an uneducated mimetic society thinking is believing with no or minimal questioning and as a result censorship is i'd say censorship is the result of people outsourcing thought now let's discuss how, what i mean when i say uh, mimetic societies like the one like the culture of uh, can, like the cancel culture people outsource thought let's discuss what that means so i believe that there are three kinds of social functions that exist the first ones are uh, done for self maintenance and are done by everyone so that would include uh, eating that would include uh, taking a bath then the and the second form of uh, function is trade functions these are uh, in accounting terms you can call them revenue functions because uh, they are done on a day to day basis they are done to keep the society in the current state and they are outsourced amongst the population so a doctor with a will outsource his cloth manufacturing to a cloth dealer a cloth dealer will outsource say his uh, law case to a lawyer and so on example of these are doctors lawyers plumbers and so on then the third and most relevant to our discourse are social functions in accounting terms these are what you would call capital functions where the uh, participation of people in this function it doesn't help in the present day unlike trade functions which help keep the society in the present state but investing in these does help in the long term and these functions are never outsourced and are done by everybody because they are the source a source of social validation in any society in the current state of our society consumption is the uh, social function that we have bestowed on to ourselves so everyone consumes without exception consumption here that then mean uh, consuming for needs it means consuming for wants and i discussed needs and wants in the episode on capitalism 
but what uh, like the first few episode of the podcast especially the first part the second episode uh, focuses on how if the social function was replaced by thinking by individual divergent thought we'd end up having much more development than consuming and increasing the productivity of a society ever could because that the changes that come as a result of thinking the ones that did in renaissance are revolutionary they would lead to the creation of the industrial age and uh, the the development is unfathomably large yet we tend to escape into incremental development because we uh, want more of what we are certain the uh, certain development under capitalism that comes a, as a result of higher limits of consumption and productions seems safe yet inefficient ineffective and um, what not against the development that comes in a society which glorifies thinking so it is only when people outsource uh, thought in order to consume that we need to censor media for example it is only when we uh, take our opinions ready made from media channels from influencers from uh, news says and not think about them personally not uh, save them according to our personal experiences not synthesize them with ye ideas that oppose these ideas it is only then that we need to censor these news sources these films these influencers and so on let's explore some idea examples of media deemed unsafe to understand whether uh, deeming media unsafe leads to uh, more good than bad so socrates ideas about god and about the nature of morality and what not were deemed uh, safe uh, unsafe and corrupting to the youth and he was killed as a result uh, was uh, sentenced to uh, death as a punishment and he ended up becoming one of the uh, most influential thinkers of all time similarly copernicus and galileo's geocentrism uh, heliocentrism was also uh, misleading and false but in the long run it because it ended up helping science more so than anything uh, then its deletion from uh, human knowledge basis would have the commonality in uh, the cases i mentioned above is that an institute is trying to keep its values in power by suppressing progressive thinkers and that is the pro- precise problem with censorship in and of itself a body with the power to censor will always strive moving discourse in a direction which serves the agenda of the body itself for example recently bihar government uh, bihar is a state in india recently bihar government banned anti government social media uh, posts and anyone who protested uh, this regulation would be excluded from being able to take up a government job so the power of censorship bestowed upon to the government was used as in a manner that it became impossible for discourse to criticize the government ideas of people being censored are more often prag- more pragmatic more beneficial than the ideas of the people censoring them 
I acknowledge that free speech is necessary in uh, a, so a society that good thing. But it is undeniable that uh, a society where people can't think, cannot enjoy free speech and has to cope with uh, uh, something like uh, censorship which leads to lower level of social well-being. But what is important is that we do realize that this isn't the default state of societies. Censorship isn't a normality, it is an abnormality which has been present of for most of human history but it shouldn't be in the modern era. Rather we should have better institutions of education and a culture that inculcates and imbibes education and the material required by people by students to understand the world around them. In fact, I'd even uh, say that censorship and uh, suppression of ideas, misinformation, offense and whatnot shows a lack of social character rather than a, a virtuous society. So what is the ideal state of discourse? Let's discuss that now. The ideal state of discourse would be free speech and the problem is that most modern nation states uh, claim to have free speech or freedom of expression in their constitution. So in order to understand what free speech truly means let's explore the history of the idea. Free speech was uh, free speech was uh, began as a radical protestant argument and it was proposed that since only God knew uh, about the dogma and worship that is beliefs and practices that were uh, really true, one must have the opportunity, the freedom to choose their own dogma and worship. This concept was appreciated by John Milton in Areopagita. I, I think I butchered the book's name. And this was little extrapolated to uh, social discourse at large. But the phrasing of free speech gave the wrong impression then and it continues to do so now. Free speech gives the impression that speech is free but in practice the, it means that some of it isn't free and some of it is free with certain limitations. Modern discourse around free speech centers around deciding the line which separates things which are free to discuss, ideas that are free to discuss and ideas around which censorship is imposed. This line, often of defamation and misleading information, is very arbitrary and vague and can be easily exploited. Examples of this include people the teenager in Britain I was discussing who was arrested for calling a police horse gay under defamation and people have also been arrested for calling the Church of Scientology a cult under defamation. Calling the Church of Scientology a cult was treated as a case of defamation. The line is very arbitrary to the point it appears to me that it is meaningless considering that discourse would then be censored if someone is calling a police horse gay. And I have previously discussed how calling a police horse gay doesn't necessarily mean that you are, most of the time it doesn't mean that you are insulting gay people. You are just trying to insult uh, the object you are 
calling gay and in this case i don't think he was even trying to insult that horse he was either trying to uh, get rid of frustration or was indulging in comedy another example of uh, free speech being exploited is that uh, powerful individuals like by jews can set up justified criticism by people like pradeep punia by manipulating these laws of defamation and free speech corporations which have higher amount of legal power can easily suppress uh, individuals uh, citizens uh, normal citizens who can't uh, who don't have the resources to fight a battle against them in the first place so the economical power possessed by certain individuals places them in a position where they can actually very literally control discourse to the point it they are almost as influential on the ground on which public discourse will play out as the government itself is if not even more so is there a better legal model of free, free speech so that we can uh, and we can also extrapolate this model culturally the model does exist and surprisingly it exists in the most influential nation state of the modern world that is united states of america the us free speech laws which is the first amendment of the us constitution very famously posits that vol- calls to violence should be censored and no other type of free speech should be censored the i think the reason for that is because calls to violence are not a part of discourse they are a call to action itself and action causes pain action causes death we can control how much this discomfort discourse causes us and we must if we want a better society as i have talked about throughout this podcast we need to discuss problems if we want to solve them if we stop having uncomfortable conversations if we stop if we censor everyone who doesn't agree with us we wouldn't be able to cope with the world around this for long so what the first amendment entails is that if as tyler said cyberbullying isn't possible and people wouldn't be uh, arrested for cyberbullying either but someone like subham misra giving rape threats which is a call to violence would be arrested and punished and i believe that us nailed the line of free speech which is required to have the most efficient form of ideological discourse what uh, the first amendment also should ideally entail is that uh, in terms of misinformation is that discussing anti vaccination uh, through speech through thought through media through art should be legal but its practice for non medical reasons shouldn't that is unless someone is medically unable to uh, advise against the king uh, a vaccine they must be uh, enforced into taking it ideological reasons for not taking vaccine should be uh, discounted yet we must uh, have discourse around these these uh, ideological ideological variables that keep someone from having vaccines just like we did with pe- uh, gay people 5 uh, 6 decades ago where v- 
we discussed uh, their ideologies and later we included them into the social general and the free discourse is so free in the u.s that using the n-word is legally uh, viable in the u.s even though i don't know why people around the world uh, are scared of using that word even when they are not referring to a black person and even when they are not related to the struggle at all possibly because of the cancel culture or and most likely because they are not able to dilute they are able to dilute but they are not able to understand that they can dilute disassociate the link between the insult the slur or whatever and the identity and as i outrageous and politically incorrect as i sound right now the widespread usage of an insult leads to dilution of the weight of the word it will become the actual n-word will become just as gravitational as the euphemism n-word words become euphemism through widespread use not through uh, they don't become euphemisms when we, we keep people from using them that only adds to the weight of the words besides denormalizing the n-word doesn't end negative feelings about black people in actual racists it only ends up creating uh, other races it ends up creating uh, self-censorship which is impossible and leads to radicalization and the only way we can overcome the problem is by, by allowing free discourse and censored accent so the discourse shouldn't always translate into accent and we must separate the abstract from the physical in the words of president obama the only way to battle hate speech is speech not oppression the discourse as a whole in us is still imperfect due to their uh, tendency to put consumerism over thought leads to a malfunctioning uh, invisible mind but even though the discourse is imperfect the medium of the discourse and more so the rules by which the discourse plays out are more than good enough it's on a side note i'd like to mention that this model of free speech doesn't work in the following contexts firstly interpersonal relationship where the discourse depends upon the context of the relationships and that would include communities of friends family colleagues basically close the communities of individuals and not platforms and although i do not encourage absolute free speech in interpersonal relationships it is good to practice it as a general value everywhere secondly government and corporations do not need to have absolute free speech and need some information hidden from the world uh, as, and that is especially the case with the military or uh, the financial records of a company because uh, we need to suppress information to uh, maintain our integrity and i discuss uh, self censorship further in an episode on trust and computers but i'd like to say that censorship is good when it is done out of uh, uh, self betterment no uh, out of a view of self betterment and it is pathological when it is done out of fear when it is done out of a fear of being socially excluded uh, 
Thirdly, I'd like to say that uh, this absolute model of free speech shouldn't be extended to children, which would lead to a widespread usage of something like uh, my law, which is... Uh, which should be banned by this time. I don't know if they banned uh, lol, but uh, that and also advertising to defenseless children because children haven't developed uh, the tools for deciphering media, which is also the case for most adults in the current state of society. But even in a society with a, a good enough education system, children are defenseless against media and as a result we shouldn't advertise directly to them or allow them to use apps such as mylol an interesting fact is that the expenditure on advertising to children went up from 100 million us dollars in 1983 to 17 billion us dollars now and these are uh, people who are not able to defend against against advertisement whatsoever to conclude that uh, segment about free speech and move on to how languages evolve i like to say that free speech is the lifeblood of democracy and the immune system of our society a society without free speech is utterly dogmatic we must not take offense, try not to take offense and inculcate habits which allow us not to take offense in order to have freer discourse and actually include as many identities as possible without radicalizing people. We must allow misinformation to fly by because after a thousand in a thousand absurd notions that amount to nothing, some of them will end up becoming uh, heliocentrism and Socrates' ideas. And I do believe that anyone who has thought about free speech deeply as a standalone subject will reach most likely reach the same conclusion, although their conclusion might differ uh, depending upon uh, their own life experiences and their own emotions. Having established the guidelines of discourse, let's move on to discussing the natural course of evolution of languages. To start, let's discuss Foucault's masterwork, History of Sexuality. In History of Sexuality, uh, Foucault explores how sexuality emerged as a discursive object in the Western world. Discursive here means that every person is a different point on the spectrum of sexuality and that is acknowledged. He argues that sexuality became discursive sometime after capitalism and modern societies, which ties back to what I was discussing in the first episode of this podcast. The book is often used as a basis for the conjecture that sexuality is a social construct. In my opinion, this wasn't because factories mass-produced individual sexuality after capitalism. This was because we generally don't linguistically acknowledge identities we exclude. After medical science allowed accommodating gay people without self-negligence, we started linguistically acknowledging individual sexuality. Sexuality is a natural object and it isn't a social construct, but its acknowledgement is uh, absolutely social. And 
this uh, the idea that we exclude identities that we uh, the we don't have words for identities that we seek to not include into the social general might seem contradictory with the notion i suggested previously that is we seek to uh, in use identities that uh, that possess a trait whose replication would lead to uh, lower social well-being as insults but we insult identities when they are so big that ac not acknowledging them isn't possible if uh, we keep uh, for example we cannot just not acknowledge fat people but in the case of sexuality it was so repressed from the start of human societies that it was possible to keep repressing them forward going forward because again the walls of our words are the walls of our understanding and if people don't have words for something as abstract as sexuality they wouldn't be able to understand it for themselves even if they were gay they wouldn't realize what that means in a social context and as a result we uh, we are able to linguistically not acknowledge people who we want to exclude for from the social general as for uh, the identity fat it is not as abstract as sexuality in a social context not in a personal context and as a result we cannot just not acknowledge its existence if we want to have discourse in the first place we'll always need a place so therefore something as physical as that but we need not have a place so therefore every abstract idea notion concept and feeling and as a result we were able to exclude not even acknowledge sexualities in the first place i would like to build up on this proposition through two more instances let's first explore the word human humans are beings we so humanities towards in a colloquial sense but uh, and humanity uh, in my opinion refers to not systematically uh, committing violence on to someone now what's interesting about the definition of humans is that it keeps expanding throughout history for almost all societies so anthropologists do uh, certainly know that for most tribes the word for the tribe itself was the word the tribe used to, to refer to humans and there was a different word they used to refer to everyone else so the them in the us versus them divide were all those who were considered humans and everyone else was just not humans this definition of the human kept expanding with as societies grew bigger after millennia during uh, the atlantic slave trade black people were treated as being inferior to humans as being subservient beings meant to serve o humans only the uh, people uh, who were being served by uh, these uh, slaves these black people were treated as humans now we include all the races in our definition of humanity at least that's true for people who are not afflicted with redundant parasitic memes but i'd like to suggest that the definition is still not all encompassing 
this may sound bizarre but in the future we'll slowly start to include the animal kingdom into our definition of humanity now tribes were as violent to other tribes as we are to anim as they were to animals and we almost are to animals we slowly stopped uh, being violent towards bigger and increasingly larger identities of the human set of beings to the point that now we uh, of the homo sapiens set of beings i'd like to say now we are at a point that all homo sapiens are included into the human identity but slowly uh, as society progresses and we are able to accommodate even more beings into our definition of you man without uh, lower levels of social well being without lower levels uh, without self negligence negligence or pathological altruism or unhealthy selfishness we'll end up in a society where animals are treated almost if not just as well as we already treat humans you uh, not homo sapiens i mean humans does right now refer to all the homo sapiens but uh, animals will also be included into the definition of human as time goes on and i am no chicken rights activist but uh, if you follow the natural course of history we first excluded people who were sentient and conscious from our definition of humans so what are the chances that we'll also include people as time goes on which are not sentient and uh, conscious uh, up to our level but can be uh, do still feel uh, some sort of uh, discomfort or pain this concept of slowly expanding definition of human uh, and humans not being homo sapiens but a social construct of who we linguistically acknowledge as humans and those we who we commit uh, systematic violence against this violence it is to be noted is not acknowledged as being violence in the first place it is acknowledged as being a normal uh, social activity is explored in depth in the black mirror episode men against fire uh, and again i uh, give spoilers here so skip ahead a minute or two but in that episode people in the military are given special implants which allow them to see the people they are fighting as being vampire or like creatures or uh, extremely weird creatures and they are also not able to hear uh, these people's voice they are just able to hear sing and the sounds you expect a monster to make this allows them to kill without remorse but when one of the soldier realizes that uh these people are humans he decides that rather than living with the memories of having killed and uh, injured so many humans he'd rather live in this fantasy world where his enemies are just not physically not humans not on an abstract level he they perceive you uh these uh, humans that they are killing as being monsters due to the implant so now let's discuss the uh, third exa Well, uh, to support this conjecture, which again is that we linguistically not acknowledge people uh, or conditions that uh, we don't want to include into our society. 
so back when we lived as tribes uh, anthropologists do know that we uh, tribes kill old and ill people because uh, the cost of keeping them in the tribe is much more than the be emotional benefit that they reap keeping them would lead to self negligence and would be an act of pathological altruism and as a result they were killed so when we lived as tribes we didn't acknowledge any physical illness whatsoever as we entered the agricultural era we were able to accommodate people with physical illnesses into our society due to a less of a need to move around because uh, even pe we could stay stationary and cater to the people who were ill and old we started acknowledging the existence of physical illnesses then as the industrial age set upon and it uh, apparently led to the a massive rise in uh, the likelihood of people being afflicted with mental illnesses uh, we do know that uh, the more modern a country is the higher the rates of depression are add is more common in post industrial civilizations and so on so we started acknowledging mental illnesses because again due to ha your level of goods and even more stationary livelihood we were able to uh, acknowledge mental illnesses without and accommodate the mentally ill people into our society without uh, with the costs not overweighing the benefits as we enter an era of uh, i'd say the information the digital uh, age we are starting to acknowledge social illness which comes in the form of check your privilege uh, the check your privilege movement i'll discuss privilege uh, more in the episode on artificial intelligence but for this uh, discussion on illnesses points towards is that illness doesn't refer to a biological condition it refers to a certain kind of disadvantage that people are afflicted with which we are willing to uh, accommodate by giving up some of our own comfort uh, an example of this is that government hospitals are run by tax money so we give up on our own uh, comfort of consumption in order to accommodate more pe uh, ill people this definition of uh, illness expands with history as i have discussed uh, uh, in this example and our threats but our threshold for accommodation remains approximately the same only the cost of accommodating someone lowers so it wasn't like tribes were less accommodating for social or mental illnesses it was just that if they the cost of acknowledging even physical illnesses would be the destruction of the tribe itself so how much well being is lower by accommodating someone goes on uh, decreasing while our threshold for acknowledge uh, uh, accommodation remains approximately the same at least for people uh, as a whole it might differ individually but if you look at it from a macro perspective the point, uh, threshold for accommodation remains the same so the conclusion of all of those examples is that language uh, we don't have semantical presets or we fail to uh, use uh, semantical presets on a day to day basis for identities 
which we want to exclude from the social general and are able to given that uh, given that they are so abstract and so obscure and so even when they are uh, obvious most of the time we either uh, use them as insults or we just uh, decide not to acknowledge them whatsoever but there are factors apart from social hedonism that affect the natural evolution of language to start understanding these uh, factors let's talk about a tra- an australian tribe so gugu yemetir i don't know how that is pronounced either uh, is a tribe that uses cardinal directions to navigate so rather than using the subject uh, respect directions like left and right that are dynamic they use the fixed planet related directions there uh, which are north south east west and this helps them navigate in the wild better because they don't have any gps this usage of cardinal directions isn't limited to google tir but can be seen in tribes from polynesia to mexico to namibia and bali what uh, I'd like to infer from this example of the usage of cardinal directions is that languages generally mirror the needs of our underlying reality. For example, the reality, the problem of navigating in the wild without a GPS, is uh, coped uh, up with by linguistically using cardinal directions, and the language mirrors the underlying problem. let's discuss some more examples of this being the case so uh, chinese digits the digits in chi- uh, mandarin are shorter than digits in english so a child who can ch- a child will be able to say three english numbers in a second while they'd be able to say four chinese uh, digits in a second This is the reason that Chinese kids are uh, better at math in general, and that is not a stereotype. That was uh, there have been studies done about it, and uh, it is true for uh, that. Uh, on gen uh, general, uh, people uh, Chinese children are more competent at mathematics than uh, Caucasian children than American children. The reason for that is. Uh, again they are able to speak more digits in a second and si- they, since that is the result they are able to remember more digits compute more digits and then it becomes a snowball because they are better at mathematics so they will like mathematics more and that goes on uh, being the case so that's why they are better at mathematics but uh, recovering from that tangent what we were talking about is that uh, how does this relate to uh, what underlying problem does this usage of shorter digits signal towards so the reason chinese are uh, have shorter digits is because uh, china doesn't have a universal script that everyone understands so the only script that is universal to the land is of mathematics that's why even in modern china most websites name are numbers and identification of people are uh, is so then more so by numbers than other nations in the world so this problem of a lack of a universal script is what uh, led to uh, shortening of 
numbers for china on a side note i'd like to say that the script of mathematics the language of mathematics is pretty fascinating in its own because the script of mathematics was invented to discover fundamental mathematical truths of about the universe and scripts like maths and accounts along with artistic languages like cinema and music will again be discussed in the next episode on art but moving on the third example of language mirroring the underlying social problems of the society comes from britain so in victorian times uh when you had to uh, say bye to someone you would say god be with you this slowly transitioned into god be with ye and so on and so on till the point that it became goodbye and afterwards it became bye this shortening of words is also seen in internet abbreviations so what the underlying problem the shortening of uh, goodbye and uh, in words on the internet achieve so in order to understand that let's uh, i'd like to point out that the rate of data transfer in languages remains same for almost all languages in the world at around 40 bits per second as per uh, christopher coop's uh, paper now for efficiency words are shortened so that more communication can take place in that limited amount of bandwidth so when we are talking with someone through text r- v- r- rather than saying laughing out loud we shorten that to lol laughing out loud is something that we'll never have to say in real life because we just laugh out loud but due to the nature of uh, the digital world the shortening of the word laughing out loud takes place so the length obscurity relevance form of a word are all results of local problems and uh, variables i call this the geo individuality of languages that is languages accommodates to the needs of the locale of a society of a culture it is because of this reason that i believe confucius again in analects said if language is not in accordance with the truth of things affairs can't be carried to success and it can be inferred from uh, this that languages dying out limits the ability of exp- of expression from the of the people that belong to that locale communication becomes less efficient and more feelings and emotions are lost in transit when languages die out this often causes alienation and an identity crisis for the people whose languages are dying out or are being modified due to external influences artificially uh, so uh, let's discuss a- an example of this so the narrative of an identity is the story it tells itself about how other identities differentiate itself from uh, themselves and this narrative is almost always linguistic in uh, its expression in one way or another that is the reason that protests develop music for example uh, hip hop in the african american struggle or bella ciao being the uh, origin 
एक्सपेक्टिंग फ्रॉम द मोन्दीनी फार्मर्स इन इटली बिकॉज द प्रोटेस्टर्स आर ट्राइंग टू एक्सप्रेस सर्टेन थिंग्स डेट कैन ओनली बी एक्सप्रेस थ्रू लैंग्वेजेस दैट दे डेवलप फॉर द सेक ऑफ दिस प्रोटेस्ट एंड इन ऑर्डर टू अंडरस्टैंड द प्रोटेस्ट वन नीड्स टू अंडरस्टैंड द लैंग्वेज विच इज बींग यूज टू एक्सप्रेस दियर आइडेंटिटी देयर एंड देयर स्ट्रगल इवन फॉर नॉन प्रोटेस्टिंग फोक्स लाइक the indians in the caribbean which were uh, taken to the caribbean by the brits they create their own language for example chutney music and it is perhaps this reason that uh, one of these uh, indian settled in the caribbean vs napul wrote we don't use a european political terms to talk about india Uh, because the political right and left come from the national constituent assembly in france and while drafting the constitution for for the new state uh, there while uh, there was a vote count going on where whether the king will have partial veto or the an absolute veto people with who voted for absolute veto sat on the right and people who voted that for uh, partial veto sat on the left so right was uh, associated with people who wanted to uphold the current uh, status quo while left were people who wanted to change the current status quo uh, and that is the basis for left and right in most uh, in all mo- uh, uh, in the modern political sense as well but the problem is that the status quo of every uh, state every nation state is extremely different so while someone uh, who supports free gun usage is supporting the status quo in america someone who does the same in india is challenging the status quo so the left right dichotomy of politics this binary politics not only does it reduce the nuance in the once uh, political ideas to certain uh, very arbitrary labels it gets very convoluted when you take into account that these political terms cannot be extrapolated to every place in the world for example the bharatiya janata party in uh, india is trying to challenge the socialist status quo that was set in the indian nation state by the congress party but it is often termed as being a right wing political party so even the political terms that we are so fond of fall apart due to the lack of uh, geo universality that, that they just cannot possess if they are uh, relative to time because placeholders are meant to work as loose presets for existing thoughts and feeling but with foreign placeholders foreign here referring to uh, places whose language doesn't cater to the locale the uh, words are now being used in as placeholders with foreign placeholders we often lack the underlying ideas to indicate uh, that they are meant to indicate and as a result reality starts getting convoluted the political scenario of india starts getting poly- convoluted that when we start using uh, words that are not of uh, that are confusing when used in our own context as if they are universal in application 
the solution to this isn't in the rejection of all foreign languages but it is in trying to understand the languages of and empathizing with as much uh, locales as we possibly can a problem that comes as a result of doing this is that we often end up uh, holding the uh, a foreign language as an uh, as an item of novel in our culture this is especially true for colonialized states like india which uphold languages of the um, of their colonizers in a, and a display of internalized colonialism that's ironic since the podcast is in english but uh, it is to be noted that there's a difference between using a foreign language uh, with and upholding a for language as an item of novelty when we uphold a language we often see that a lot lot of heritage of our own gets lost in translation for example i discussed in the third episode of the podcast that dharma isn't a text the hindu dharm isn't a text but it is a uh, encouragement of individual thought but uh, what gets lost in translation is that dharma gets appropriated to western text based religions which undeniable truth another instance of people getting trapped uh, and losing their heritage uh, is uh, comes in the form of linguistic capitalism what i like to call linguistic capitalism so something like uh, the word middle class seems like it uh, indicates the middle of the income distribution curve but actually middle class refers to the uh, managers not the workers this doesn't matter as uh, rather than trying to understand the historical significance the geographical origin of the word we end up uh, uh, being trapped in a perpetual chase uh, of higher levels of consumption and i'm not saying that the usage of a term like middle class is the primary reason for us being trapped in this cycle of perpetual uh, levels of higher consumption what i am saying that is does contribute if you are not able if you don't understand the significance of the words you are using you won't understand the significance that of their effect on your own life another example of uh, words being used to propagate a cultural machine like capitalism is productivity in the last episode i discovered discussed how productivity has no upper limit we keep chasing higher and higher levels of productivity and it becomes the object uh, in our lives that is uh, of especially the case with capitalism because productivity often is measured against money and the higher accumulation of money leads to higher levels of consumption and unfortunately and tragically consumption is used as a method of communication in a society uh, under capitalism because we try to uh, display our social status by uh, reaching higher levels of consumption and that defeats the underlying purpose of cons- uh, communication and seems paradoxical which is to let people understand or nuance or abstract uh, self rather than our physical self but we limit ourselves to uh, giving people a show of or larger than life physical self
बट एनी वे वॉट हैपन्स इन द प्रोसेस ऑफ चेजिंग हायर लेवल्स ऑफ प्रोडक्टिविटीज पीपल ऑफन एंड द फाइंडिंग अ सेंस ऑफ हायर प्रजेम बिलोंगिंगनेस दिस इज एस्पेसली द केस विथ सोसाइटीज वेयर वर्क इज स्लोली रिप्लेसिंग रिलेशनशिप्स विच इज आई थिंक द केस फॉर मोस्ट ऑफ द मॉडर्न वर्ल्ड इन हिज बुक बॉलिंग बॉलिंग अलोन द ऑथर डिस्कसेज द हाउ Uh, in two or three decades, the time spent hanging out with friends and uh, in with your social circles every day has decreased from eighty-five to fifty-seven minutes, which is an half an hour decrease. And the amount of time people tend to entertain their friends at their home has went down from being thirteen to fourteen average on an average to being about four times on an average. To make sense of this, ah. Uh, indulgence this extreme indulgence in one's work even when it seems uh, increasingly meaningless because as as marx pointed out one is so distant from the uh, object that they produce under capitalism that they, they can't find a meaning in their work and what happens as a result of late capitalism is people distant then distance themselves from their social circles and indulge more into their work as a last bid attempt to find a meaning in it without realizing that they can't find a meaning in it because just by increasing the intensity of it but we still end up uh, in the struggle of working endlessly to keep ourselves from paying attention to the existential anguish the unhappiness the loneliness that comes as a result of uh, isolating oneself from uh, their uh, social relationship we'll discuss this uh, obsession with work or obsession with uh, indulging into it more and more in the episode on happiness basically the cult of productivity is a modern religion the religion is promoted by self help gurus motivational speakers instagram pages and so on and religions typically uh, and traditionally gave us perception of control not necessarily control but a perception of control if that perception might be that if you follow this certain text you would end up in a place where you'll be eternally happy uh, that might come under capitalism uh, by under the notion that if you work more and more and have more money you would have more control over your life and i discussed in the first episode uh, about how most of our decisions are saved by our unconscious over which we have almost no control and the conscious just tells itself a story about how it controls everything but that doesn't matter since the perception of control is in and of itself enough for um, people to uh, keep away from the existential anguish that would otherwise bother them perpetually so per- productivity uh, gives this perception of control by imbibing the belief that your work has meaning and if you work hard enough the meaningfulness of your work will uh, uh, make itself more clear it uh, is uh, replacing traditional religions and is obviously a cope against capitalism and putting uh, consumerism on a pedestal and it is a subset of i'd say uh, 
supporting religions to the behemoth uh, of the socio-religious machinery that capitalism has become. The problem is that productivity as a preset and whatever higher meaning of a religion has been bestowed upon itself as a line of thought even is an entrepreneurial idea and applying it to your personal life alienates you from the human path in yourself. The word productivity itself comes from economics where it is used to point towards the input-output ratio of a firm. And as a result, productivity is goal-oriented. That is, one has to study this much in a day, exercise this much in a day. Productivity forces someone to focus on the ends of a pursuit to make it worthwhile. The problem is that means often give meaning to a pursuit and ends just put an end to the meaning. For example, the moment you get good grades doesn't give meaning to your study, uh, to your journey through that curriculum, through that academic literature. The means of getting those good grades by themselves give meaning to your struggle. And because productivity takes place as an object, uh, there is no upper meaning that will lead to you feeling content or happy. Pure, uh, even have a sense of meaning. The struggle keeps going on and on and if you don't find meaning in the struggle itself, you would never find a meaning in uh, the goals. Uh, because again, means are the source of meaning for any given pursuit. So while productivity is a good placeholder term, it shouldn't be the dominant mental model or a mindset for people to cope against capitalism, rather one should indulge, indulge themselves into the struggle of living a natural lifestyle, a more grounded in nature or more aligned with our genes lifestyle with a modern mind in order to uh, cope against capitalism. But ending that tangent and coming back to language, I'd like to say that language is a two-sided sword. Language can distort a culture's perception of reality and alienate it, but at the same time, it also has the power for allowing better communication, uh, development, uh, better synthesis of ideas that will lead to higher social well-being and uh, uh, invoking feelings in people that would allow them to understand your struggle and uh, uh, include them into the social general. French novelist Alfonso Daudet even said, when a people are enslaved, as long as they hold on to their language, it is as if they had the key to their prison. Because if a culture is able to retain its ability to express, it uh, retains its uh, ability to reconnect with the world, to reach uh, into the human path on some of uh, the other people. But the moment it gives up on its own language, it has no uh, way of uh, communicating its own struggle with someone from the outside. What this also entails is that proficiency with more words and mediums of communication le leads to even better communication. So learning obscure words and exploring new art forms 
allows us to not only understand our own emotions better but also connect uh, lead to higher levels of social well-being in many sorts of ways because languages like music and cinema can reach deep into our psyche and communicate uh, emergent feelings that uh, and even i uh, doing uh, even language of literature can communicate feelings that are beyond words by themselves and can only come out by uh, using words to create an emergent narrative of a certain sort it, and in the same way they are able to uh, help us invade our own psyche in a way that we wouldn't have been able to if we weren't familiar with obscure words and didn't have larger walls of reality to uh, to think inside and to exist inside unfortunately people use language as a means to signal rather than communicate this can be inferred from people saying you know what i mean uh, uh, repeatedly the phrase does have its place but over usage of relying on the listener's interpretation of what you said runs into the problem of not only the do you have troubles understanding what you mean yourself the listener uh, also faces the problem of actually trying to understand uh, try to have the same emotional response to what you are saying as you did another way people use language to signal rather than communicate is by having higher levels of physical or uh, reduced nuance uh, reduced abstract uh, labels such as higher marks or consumption of more goods to conclude this episode i'd like to say that our world lays on the foundation of our ability to communicate it what you can't explain to others you can't explain it to your own self as becomes apparent when you use the feynman technique of understanding at the edge of language lies the limits of our understanding and at the limits of our understanding lie the end of our flourishing as a species to flourish we need not only have a wide and diverse lexicon we also need to understand diverse scripts like cinema mathematics music literature accounts and so on we will discuss these uh, non traditional languages in the episode on art language is one of humanity's greatest gifts but it is just an aid in the development of our world it isn't our world our world isn't words or data or poem we may be able to create a picture and image of what our world looks and feels like if we into someone with the usage of words and data and poem but we wouldn't be able to recreate what the world truly is because reality is Sorry for that but if i gave you the amplitude and frequency of the sound you wouldn't have understood it neither would you have understood the uh, what i meant but if i said it was an agonizingly loud sound the closest to, uh, someone could come to describing a sound like that is by writing a poem about it or creating an emergent narrative of some sort to describe how that was but even then language is a tool for pragmatic development of the world it is a tool for communication of the world it isn't the world the world is
So on that closing note, if you have made it this far, I sincerely appreciate your dedication to my exp expression. Thanks for listening. Until the next episode, take care.